up, everyone? Welcome back to another Timmons podcast. Uh, the number one podcast in Goshen, I guess. I'll say that. I don't know. There may be other podcasters in Goshen, but I'm number one, maybe. Okay. Anyways, I got a great guest here today. Um, Brian, welcome. How's that for an intro? It's great. Yeah. All right. It's okay. <laughs> welcome, Brian. Um, I've been thinking, yeah, we talked a little bit before we started the podcast about uh, why I wanted you on. Yeah. And, um, yeah, maybe I'll just kind of reiterate that real quick, and then I'd love to know. Uh, yeah, we'll get into that. But, yeah, so you and I have been going to church for a little while, and I heard your story, and that's when I first thought about it. But the other day, this week, I was meeting with a mutual friend of ours, and he uh, mentioned your name. And I just was like, man, I need to get Brian on the podcast. Yeah. And so here we are. That's it's exciting. It. Yeah. So tell everyone, just do a quick intro about who you are, where you're from. Um, well, my name's Brian Fry. I primarily grew up here in uh, Goshen, Indiana. Spent two or three years uh, living in Elkhart. Um, I had the privilege of traveling around a little bit through my 20s, 30s. I uh, got to live overseas, and yeah, and now I'm back here, and seems to be home. It's where I keep drawn yeah, back yeah. to, so yeah. The promised land. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that's so. I didn't know you grew up here. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. mostly. Were you yeah. born in Goshen? No, I was born in a small town in Michigan called Alma. And okay. There's a little college up there. It's uh, Scotland, USA. So everybody from Alma is descendants of the Scottish. And really? uh, yeah, we have a big Highland festival. And really, I was born there. I lived there until probably seven or eight, and then we moved down here to Goshen for. Yeah economic reasons there's just no work up there and uh, yeah so your parents do rv stuff then uh, they originally did i mean my dad bounced back and forth between uh masonry that was a family trade okay and uh and then obviously rv work whenever things were slow or yeah yeah that's wild so you're like straight scotch uh no, no. scotch irish some native american okay. but yeah primarily you know 60 percent scottish 40 yeah. percent irish and you know, enough native, I guess, to claim I'm native. I don't know where that comes in there, but uh, that's what I was told. So yeah. I'll buy it. Yeah, we'll take it for sure. That's awesome, dude. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's wild. So, yeah, no, I, that's my parents moved here too because of economic reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, I think that's what draws a lot of people to go, which is interesting. Yeah. You know, it's like I never really thought about Goshen living in it but then when you leave it's like oh yeah there's things happening here oh yeah that's and, the only thing that one of the only things that really keep me here now honestly is yeah. like i've lived other places but just the economy is solid i mean yeah when you live in other places and like even other countries they're like what you don't have a degree in this or that how do you survive and i was like well where i'm from you just yeah go get a job right I mean, you can go make a thousand dollars a week or whatever right <laughs> you know? with an eighth grade education uh -huh. no yeah big deal. so <laughs> it's kind of a unique place in the world i think has been it's different mm -hmm. yeah no that's cool well and i you know um i'm trying to think when we first started when i first met you you started coming to <clears throat> church a couple of years, maybe three or four years ago or no maybe two years ago yeah maybe two i was it after covid um Gosh, my memory's horrible, especially short term. Um, I know I was like dabbling my foot in considering coming. I was kind of visiting churches. I really liked Mission 72. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I was just struggling a lot with the whole church thing. I yeah. mean, I was down with Jesus, never stopped being down with Jesus. But, you know, I just had some 
issues. And so eventually you guys won me over with your love, I guess. I, uh, <laughs> I kept coming in and eventually I stayed about a year ago, I think. Okay. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. That's, uh, the church, the church thing is interesting. Like, uh, there's a lot I heard there. I was mm-hmm. talking to a buddy recently and he was telling me just kind of, um, yeah, it feels like the church just likes to chew people up, spit them out. You know, it's, that's tough. Yeah. It's very tough. It can, and it's interesting. I mean, you know, considering I felt like I came to the faith outside of the church, so I wouldn't say that the church to me was later on add-on because I definitely integrated, but you're right. I mean, sometimes we we try to kill our wounded, you know, somebody like, you know, is struggling or wrestling with something or you don't understand the direction they're taking in life, and instead of coming out there to reach and pull them back in non-judgmentally, you just say, oh, well, they're in sin. Let's just turn a blind eye and let them... Or talk about them. Or talk about them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Don't help them out. Just tell everyone about how how messed up they are. Right. Yeah, that's tough. You know, you don't want to... I also want to rip on the church, but I feel like a lot of people have had that experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And I mean, and we are the church, so we ultimately are. we just have to make sure that we're not the ones yeah, really. doing that. Or if we see somebody wounded, say, hey, you know, let's try to pick them up and yeah. love them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's what, so you were not going anywhere before Mission 72? Um, I was bouncing a little bit, trying to find my home because I felt like deep down inside of my heart, I should be part of an assembly, yeah. you know? I mean, I don't really feel like there's a lot of necessarily verses in the Bible that say go without a church or anything, but there's yeah. the Hebrews ten twenty five where it says, you know, not forsaking the gathering of yourselves together all the more as you see the day approaching. And it's kind of like the day is approaching, so yeah. we definitely <laughs> ought to be together. And, yeah. you know, and the church is the bride of Christ and we have a greater fullness in, in union together, yeah. you know, than we have of him individually. And some Ephesians two twenty two stuff, if you want to look that up. <laughs> Yeah, I um it's a, yeah, I I totally yeah, there's something about having a good community around you. Mm-hmm. Especially as things are getting rough, it's like um, <clears throat> I do appreciate our church body cuz of cuz the fact there's a good community. Oh, absolutely. And it feels like there's this added grace. That's what I kind of try to explain to some people who don't want to uh go to church or be part of the community is I really do feel like an added grace on my life like whenever I meet together and, you know, and yeah and and worship and i'm actually there's involvement um and sharing of life um with other believers it's just like it's i wouldn't say it's easier to walk with the lord but it is easier to walk with the lord it's hard to do it alone we're not meant to be islands unto ourselves right so yeah well one of the things i appreciate about you i I, I at least i'm observing of you is you're very evangelistic in a way well you've brought people to church your outreach I've just seen you as someone who connects with a lot of different people and you're very like, Hey, come along with me to church. No judgment, no worries. We're here together. That's yeah. at least what I've seen. Yeah. Um, and that's cool. That's a really cool, uh, thing to have. And people seem to go with you. Yeah. You know? Like that's, well, I, I think it's just like, um, the method. I mean, I wouldn't say the method, but just, uh, in my earlier days, it was just always like driving things home, whether it's like your four spiritual laws or I got to win somebody to Christ. And it, there was always like this agenda and it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It was just where I was at. And now in this later part of my life, I just meet people where they're at. I love them. I serve them. I see what they're open to and I just meet them where they're at. And then slowly they begin to think, wow, this guy really cares about me. He's really invested in me as a person. 
and you'll be surprised, you know, they'll want what you have whenever they see the reality of that in your life. And, and they don't expect perfection. I used to think that I had to come all squeaky clean and perfect, but they see, yeah, yeah, they see, they see warts. They see me messed up. They say, see me say stupid things on Facebook. I'm a clown (laughs) and I'm a clown in real life and I'm, I'm goofy everywhere I'm at, but people are drawn to that. And I, uh, I just love people and I want to see people thrive. So I become whatever I need to win that person, to bring that person closer to the Lord. Yeah. And to love them better. Yep. Yeah. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I wonder if it's like, um, just being younger, if it's, if that, you know, as you get older, you get more wisdom and you've just like bashed your head against those rocks so many times that just makes you a lot more, I don't know. You're less rigid, mm-hmm. you know, because I definitely can see like this is how it has to be. This is exactly what it is. And then, as you get older, you're like, oh man, yeah, yeah. Those those methods work, but man, it's so much easier when you just let the, the Lord walk you. Yeah, it, instead a- of you just absolutely. And I think as we get older, we begin to have like a more realistic um, estimation and view of ourselves. It's like um, when I was young, I was very like proud and self righteous and you know, and then as I got older, I can more relate to like, you remember whenever, um, I want to say it was John eight, whenever the woman was caught in adultery and they were bringing her before Jesus to like stoner. And then, you know, Jesus draws on the ground and he's basically like, he who's without sin cast the first stone. Right. And then notice it was from the oldest to the youngest that walked away because it doesn't take you too long walking in this life before you realize like, you know, in your heart of hearts, like I'm a messed up person. I know that I'm a messed up person at the core of my being without Christ. I am not a good person. And, you know, and so I don't bring a whole lot to the table. And the older I get, the more I realize that it's all him. Quicker to jump in. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's me. I'm messed up. Yeah, that's what, that's so interesting. You have more data points of messed upness. Right? <laughs> as you're older, you're like, yeah. But yeah, it doesn't like, take long. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So yeah. you want to talk a little bit about, I mean, your journey just into, well, or maybe your, yeah, I said testimony. I don't know if we yeah. don't need to jump in there. But just like what, so, you, you know, seven or eight, you come to Goshen. How long have you been living here in Goshen at that, that at that age? I know I just asked you four different questions. Oh, no, it's fine. I mean, I can kind of, uh, I was thinking of just different things. Um, maybe I could tell a little bit about um, maybe my family of origin. Okay. I feel like, um, which I'll get to later, how I had lived in Guatemala, and I learned a lot from um, being immersed in a Latino culture, and I, I glean things and I understand things differently. Um, I just, I just take the best of everything that I experience in life and integrate it into myself to try to make myself, uh, a, a more well-rounded person. Yeah. And one thing I learned from the Latinos is like, if I'm talking to one of my Guatemalan friends, I don't necessarily say, how are you? Mm. You know, that's a very like North American U S type question. How are you? But I'll soften it and I'll begin to ask by like, how is your family? I want to know how their family is, because if I know how your family is, then that tells me how you are. Oh, interesting. And it's more of a collective type thing. So I think I'd like to begin just <laughs> maybe saying a little bit about where my family came from so that people could understand who I am. Yeah. And you're uh, like building the base. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so my uh, family of origin was pretty wild, pretty rough. Um, all four of my grandparents, um, were very, very heavy 
alcoholics. And I guess it would have been during the 30s and the 40s. And uh, um, they were just um, kind of vicious and violent people. I mean, like the stories that like my mom and dad would tell me, like I feel like my mom and dad are like my heroes just to see how they became and how they developed and who they were as people knowing where they'd come from. Like, for instance, my grandfather on my dad's side, uh, he was named Glenn, and my dad was named after him, but he was this just monstrously large man. Like, his hands were twice as big as mine. Oh, wow. And he had this fiery red hair. They called him Red, and he always had these big Cadillacs, and he would work hard, and if he wasn't at work, he was getting drunk, Mm -hmm. violent. And so my dad would tell me stories about... um, him having to drive my grandfather's Cadillac down to the bar when he was 13, 14 to pick him up. And, um, and whenever he, he would drive him home at 13, 14, and he'd be sitting at the kitchen table with needle nose pliers, picking men's teeth out from between his knuckles. And oh, wow. the, the police didn't want to arrest him. Um, he was just a very vicious and a violent man. And my mother had similar experiences, not to that degree, uh, her kind of um, tragedy was that from maybe four years old, she basically raised herself. All her siblings were older. Her parents were gone getting drunk, and so she still struggles with fear, like deep down in the core. She's, she's a beautiful, amazing uh, woman, um, nurturing, kind, deep, but she, you know, there's that root of fear in her from her, you know, upbringing and things like that. Yeah. But neither of, uh, neither of my parents resorted to any kind of violence or anything with me growing up. I, I saw my dad, you know, smash one or two people, but that was out of self-defense. He was not violent around us or anything like that. And so... You probably saw that and was like, I'm going to shield mm-hmm. my kids. So, that. and that's how life is. It's a pendulum. If you're raised in one way, then sometimes you go to another extreme rather than finding the balance. And mm. so not saying there's a balance to violence, but, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyway, so it was kind of, that was just, you smash them halfway. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah exactly. just, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was just kind of, um, that. So my father didn't have any kind of background in the church. I mean, his grandmother was like, you know, just love the Lord. And then my great grandmother on my mom's side was Catholic, but she loved the Lord, like feeding hobos by the train tracks. And she was just a saint of a woman. I knew both of my great grandmothers and they were both saints. The one smelt like her house smelt like cookies all the time. And she was just (laughs) kind. And then the other one was just reading her Bible all the time. And she raised everyone else's kids. And she was just a saint too. That's cool. Um, but so I saw the, um, I saw that my parents, my, my father, like, uh, so he wasn't really a believer and he lived a wild life and he was dealing with his trauma in the way that some people would. He, you know, when he was young, he womanized and used a lot of drugs. And, you know, at one point I took a similar path for my youth. But, um, and then my, my mother kind of had some Catholic influence, but about the time she was um, 12 or 13, her parents got divorced and at that time the catholic church wasn't as friendly to divorce so they right. threw her out so that was her only understanding of what the church was church was wow but surprisingly as a little kid i remember my mom praying with me she read me some you know picture bible stories and stuff but there was no like they didn't take us to church you know there wasn't anything really you know like that yeah 
um, they would throw us on a blue bus if it drove by the house and we <laughs> wanted to go to church. So it's not that I never had any exposure, but it was just very limited. Yeah. And I hadn't seen that walked out before me. So yeah. something that I'd like to say where things pivoted and changed was kind of, um, kind of strange was, uh, well, before I say that, sorry. Oh yeah, go for it. <laughs> I, uh, I think I had a really, really great childhood. I felt loved. I felt protected. I felt like my parents did an amazing job. And still to this day, like I couldn't have asked for better parents. Like the people that raised me and how they raised me are very much, um, credited to anything good that's within me, humanly speaking. My mom's intuition and compassion and kindness flows through me. My dad had this thing, we called it the hillbilly heart. Mm-hmm. And basically what it was was Southern hospitality. You know, there would always be an extra plate of food made if we were making in case somebody stopped by. Mm. Anyone who came through town could sleep on our couch, sometimes for days, sometimes for months. We always had people living with us. Mm. Um, we cared for people, and it was kind of a cultural thing as well because half his family was from the South, so we kind of took that on. Mm. But uh, so everything went really good until sometime when I was about 12, and for some reason or another, my mom decided to leave my dad mm. um, with a... Uh, with his uh with his best friend i mean she had a context for that i mean he had cheated on her from when they were together when she was probably 14 and he was 16 all the way up until you know yeah after i was born and so he yeah yeah so she never she never let it go (laughs) chickens coming to roost in a way Uh probably Yeah. yeah and so i watched her go through her dark night of the soul and she had a few years struggling with alcoholism and that's whenever I'd moved to Elkhart but that's kind of when I think I flipped out at about 12 like I had never touched drugs or alcohol or anything even though marijuana was around me it was you know yeah smoked regularly I, I didn't think anything about it It was like a cigarette I mean it was just common yeah but my dad just so happened to have a ton of it in his room you know there'd be time when there's a few pounds in there so oh, wow. it was pretty easy to access it and so I started smoking weed I think and drinking and doing drugs and things like that. And, uh, I had a pretty wild, um, um, teenage years, you know, I bounced back and forth between Goshen and Elkhart. I would get expelled from Goshen middle school. Then I would go to Elkhart and then get expelled from Pure Moran middle school. Then I would bounce back and I went to, um, St. Something or another. I don't know. It's a Catholic church on the corner of St. John's. No, it was on uh, Prairie Street in Maine. It's a big, tall one. Sister Virginia was a nun, and she had a GED program. And after I got, like, expelled four or five times, and I was finally back at Goshen, the superintendent just looked at me, and he's like, just do us a favor and sign yourself out. And that's when I was 16. Oh, wow. So I uh, wow. so I did that, and, uh, and praise God for Sister Virginia. She was just the meanest nun that you could ever imagine. <laughs> And, but she heard the Lord. One time I was in the parking lot and like, um, I ate some shrooms before I went in there and I used to like, think I could handle my stuff. You know, I'd, you know, I'd go to school and be messed up on drugs. As as I said, that's how I spent my teenage years. And so like the shrooms hadn't even hit yet. And I'm sitting in the classroom and sister Virginia calls me into the office and she's like, 
she just looks dead at me and says, what'd you take? And oh, I was like, wow. what? <laughs> and so anyways, I don't know. But she worked with me and I still ended up getting my GED That's and so on and so on. But it was just like these little people that God puts in your life. And those are like the pillars. It's like they're the normal people, just like your school teachers. Your, and those are the people that make the difference in the community. And yeah. I mean, I really believe that. And that's all I would aspire to be is just somebody who serves, somebody that loves. And Wow. Anyways, but uh, um, when I was 14, the weirdest thing happened. Um, my dad was having some struggles with money, and I didn't know how bad it was. And uh, he laid in bed, and this is his version of the story, what he told me. I, I saw how everything played out, though, but he told me the story later. He laid in bed, and he said, he said, God, I'm scared. He said, I would sell my soul for a million dollars. I don't know how I'm going to feed these kids. I don't know, you know. And anyways, um, three weeks later, we're sitting there on a Saturday night, and he gets called on the Hoosier Millionaire Show. No way. That's serious. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> No way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, way. <laughs> so this was like my first major exposure to God. I mean, I'm sure I had glimpses, but this was like the punch in the face where he was coming in to like restore us one way, shape or form or another. He was coming in hot. And so uh, anyways. My word. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so his sister comes to him and she's like, Hey Glenn, she's like, I've been seeing the psychic for a few years. And this lady told me, you know, how many kids I would have and, um, the names of them or not the names with the gender and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, I asked her for the numbers. And, and she said, if you choose these four numbers, you'll get the million. And so my dad took this piece of paper and, uh, the Hoosier millionaire took had him pick up a car, this red Cadillac that he had actually been secretly lusting after. Cause you remember his dad always had Cadillacs. Yeah. And so he wanted this car. And anyways, they told him to drive it down there to Indy, come on the show. And you know, you never know, maybe you'll hit it lucky. And so he's got these four numbers in his hand and he's in the hotel room the night before the show. And I wasn't there with him, but I imagine he was pissing on himself in yeah. fear. Cause I mean, this would be terrifying. And so he cries out to God and he says, God, he's like, I'm scared. I'm scared. And he said God spoke to him. And he said that I'm going to give you four numbers and you're going to choose those. You're going to go home and you're going to serve me for the rest of your life. Wow. Yeah. And so he crumpled up the numbers from his sister and he chose those four numbers. And sure enough, he got $4,000 or something like that. And that was about as low as you could get. And, uh, and he went home. And he was just Jesus this and Jesus that and all like his like buddies growing up and people he would get high with and all this like was like, oh, my gosh, your dad's gone nuts. And I was like, yeah, he has gone nuts. I was like, I thought he went nuts. I didn't know Jesus. You know, I continued on my path for a few more years. But that was just something that, you know, it was God in, invading like my family line. Yeah. And even though I thought he went nuts because I wasn't really a believer. I was in darkness. I was doing my own thing. I was dealing with my own whatever. And, uh, yeah. So that was a pretty big moment. And, uh, and he did, he, he walked with the Lord and until he died. I mean, he ran well, yeah, as well as he could with everything that was thrown at him. He did well. Yeah. But, uh, so 
something kind of interesting was like when I say I was a troublemaker, I wasn't like a little bit of a troublemaker. I was like a messed up individual. I mean, I'll I'll tell you the truth. I mean, like I uh, I don't want to say anything to incriminate myself, so I may just leave it to things <laughs> that I was you. caught for. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, okay. But we'll just say that like uh, I, I did a lot of drugs um, and. I, I would rob a little bit, and I had a gun fetish. I always had guns from mid-teenage years. Um, I'd always have a gun on me. I think it made me feel powerful when I had no yeah. sense of power. And I had no um, no training or no other than rap music, so I probably should not have been <laughs> having a gun. And, but, you know. Hold it this way, right? That's where I was at. And so, uh, <clears throat> anyways, I got a, when I was 16 years old, I actually got caught for... Um, burglarizing a couple homes wow yeah and at that time they did like the felony systems like abc blah 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 and now i guess their numbers i don't know it's been a three strike or whatever yeah it was like well they did like a b and c and now they do one two three and it's a different system but anyways uh, i had two b felonies so i was facing six to 40 years and they were trying to charge me as an adult, it's called being waived. So they were trying to put me in adult jail, adult prison at 16 because of how the severity of the crimes. And I didn't know anything about the legal system. So they, I mean, not to negate what I did was bad, but 40 years is a long time. For um, a 16 year old. Yeah. And so they scared me into pleading guilty. And I went before a judge. And so they gave me a lesser charge of a C felony, which would be like two to eight years. And so. Um, yeah, so I ended up getting waived. I did a little bit like a month and then they put me out and just suspended this like sentence over my head. Well, anyways, long story short, I did that whole sentence on the installment plan. Like I would just not be able to pass a piss test, you know, cause I smoked marijuana. And right. so they would lock me up for six months and, you know, for a failed piss test. And then, you know, on one of the occasions, yeah, it just got progressively worse. And another time, the first time I went to prison, I ended up going for a year and a half. And uh, that was at, you know, that wasn't, obviously it wasn't enough because I didn't stop and I still had things hanging over my head. But this is embarrassing even to say, but within three months of me getting released my first time in prison, like I had this ankle bracelet thing on because I still had like two and a half plus years hanging over my head. And I was on home detention and I, I, uh, I was allowed to go to church or whatever. And that was my excuse to leave. But so I said, I was going to church. I took my mom's car and, um, anyways, I went and picked up some prescription medicines, some painkillers, and I had a case of beer and was driving around and, oh, wow. uh, had a car full of young people, my friends in there and, uh, cops tried to pull us over and, uh, we were at a red light and traffic's just going across. And I basically said, uh, oh, hell no. And I just punched the gas. Wow. And just went on a little high-speed chase um, just a few blocks away. And once I knew that they weren't following me because the way I was driving, I just jumped out, booked it on foot. And, uh, and all of a sudden it dawned on me what I had done. Like that was my mom's car. This is where I'm at. Yeah, you have the bracelet. I have the bracelet. I had been on the run before, and it's not a fun life. It just it, it increased my drug use and things like that, and, and it was killing me. The drugs were killing me. My lifestyle was killing me. My foolishness was killing me. 
And um, so I just turned myself around and I went and I ended up going to Westville for a longer sentence. And it was, um, it was there that God got a hold of me. It was, uh, I just started looking around and it was like a, it was a revolving door. I was starting to see the same people come in and out. And I said, this is my life. This is my future. This is my reality. And then, uh, and so when I was sitting there in a, in a cell, I just, uh, I was alone and I said, God, if you're like really real, I mean like real, and you reveal yourself to me, like I'll do anything that you say. And as I'm laying there on the floor, it was like everything just disappeared around me and I could see just the universe before me and I heard a voice and he said, you've lived your life for yourself as though you were the center of it all. You've used people, you've cared for no one, but I'm here to tell you today, my son Jesus Christ is the center of it all and him you must serve. And I got up off of the floor and my heart was changed and I began to love and he began the process of teaching me. And I spent a few years in a cell with the Bible, asking him questions and the Holy Spirit would teach me things. And sometimes it would just be illuminated it'd pop off the text and it would make sense. Sometimes he would send in a minister into the prison and the question I was wrestling with, he would answer. Mm. But it was very much like, God taught me like I shared this song on Facebook like a couple months ago or a couple weeks ago as I said I have no concept of time but it was a song called like God taught me and it was exactly how it was my first three years walking with the Lord I wasn't in a church I wasn't with anybody but I was deeply dependent on the Lord for survival mm. and just for life period and I knew that I wasn't going to walk this thing out without him I knew that I needed him and prison was my training ground I met people from all different walks of life, from different you know, faiths, and I encountered different religions, cults, and sects that I've rarely heard of outside of prison. Rosicrucian Brotherhood, you know, black Muslims, there's like Native American religions, and I learned theology through combating lies. And it was just like, so I really just loved the scripture, I loved the word. The way I passed time was I'd spend hours in prayer um, spend hours in the word, hours on the yard, lifting weights. I mean, I was just, I figured I was going to make the most of this. And <clears throat> it, it was interesting because God literally talked to me and the things that he told me came to pass. He told me three months after I came to know him that he's like, one day you'll serve me in Guatemala. And I was like, man. And, and I saw like this tree and it looked like it had this like, like a, I wouldn't say like taffy, but there was something off of it. And I just saw it was tropical. And I said, God, I don't want to go to Africa. <laughs> I was just like, I just <laughs> I was such an idiot. But he didn't tell me it wasn't in Africa. I found out that later. But and the opportunity arose. Things lined up in my life where it wasn't me trying to do it the first time I went. It was just presented. And, you know, that's a that's another story. But um, yeah, he told me that they'd let me out of prison early. That shouldn't have happened. They, wow. let, they let me out three months early, and uh, he told me to. They said they'll either let me out on an ankle bracelet, or um, that I could go stay at the faith mission. And it was that year they started this program, the community transition program, and so those were my options. And he said, "Don't go home." He said, "Don't talk to anybody from your past, your friends. Limit family contact." He's like, "We're going to continue this path." And sure enough, it was him and I for a few years. And um, 
Wow. And so I thought I was going to the faith mission to finish out my three months. But they let me out early, and he made me stay there for um, almost a year. It was 11 months. There was a chaplain there named Charles Molly, and he was raised up in the Lord by a fellow named Bill Bright. Um, and uh, anyways, he taught me a lot of stuff and walked with me for about a year. He was from um, Zambia. Oh, wow. And so he's this big African guy, and he was cool. And so he was one of my mentors for a year. And God put a lot of cool mentors in my life as he brought me closer to the place where he was going to tell me to be part of a church. And so... The Faith Mission in uh, Elkhart? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. aware of it. Wow. How long were you in uh, jail for? For, oh. that, for that stint? Oh, that stint? I, I'm not sure. Maybe two and a half years, something like yeah. that. It's like I did one and a half, two and a half. I caught some extra charges in there. The running, the res- resisting while fleeing. I'm sure. And, and the DUI, they like. But, oh, here's here's the, man, here's the punchline. I, I don't want to just skip a whole bunch of stuff, but, like, God redeems, man. Yeah. The the same judge that, like, like he had reservations, you know. Because I'm babyface as a mug, and I was really babyface when I was a kid. And he's like, dude, I do not want to send you to prison. He's like, look at me. And then I'm like, I'm like, yeah, but I'm an idiot, you know. <laughs> and so anyways, this uh, judge, uh, Bonfiglio, and he, uh, he tried working with me. And uh, anyways, he had to send me to prison. And fast forward to 2015, I'm like uh, living in Guatemala. I'm a missionary. These things that God told me would happen would happen. And... Um, and for there was a reason uh, me and my first wife and I couldn't conceive, and we were doing these fertility treatments, and we were looking for other options. And uh, I know I skipped a whole lot of stuff, but oh well. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> anyway, so we decided to like clean up my record, see if that's even a possibility, and then maybe we could adopt. And so I had this stack of like letters of recommendation from police officers, the people that run the faith mission, like. Everywhere God had led me, I just had reputation and favor. It's like everywhere I went, it was like he caused me to float to the top and just have opportunities I should not have had yeah. because of who I was and how I'd lived before Christ. And um, anyway, so I stood before uh, Judge Bonfiglio, and anyways, he was just shocked to see me. And the prosecutor stands up, and he's like, yeah, but Mr. Fry has been a menace to society, and he doesn't deserve another chance. And, this and, and Bon is like, okay, that's enough. He tells him to sit down, and he's like, Mr. Fry, you are the exact like reason that we have these loopholes in the law, and we will gladly expunge and wipe out your record and, and this and that. And I can't remember the court terminology. I just remember yeah. feeling pure joy and knowing that it had nothing oh. to do with me and everything to do with God. Yeah. And it's like, no matter what we're going through, like he does restore the years that the locust devoured. And like even these generational curses and the things that we walk through in the shadows and stuff from our family and past, he can redeem all things if we just trust him with everything. And that's all he wants. And uh, I don't know. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah, and so that was uh, that was really dope. Yeah, that's so. Sweet. Yeah, <laughs> and, to have that feeling of just like almost being wiped—it was a wipe clean. Yeah, God did that. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so, and there was lots of little things like that. But uh, <clears throat> did you go back to your family after Faith Mission? Um, no, I went out and I kind of lived on my own. I transitioned. I went to a church called uh, Living Faith, and I really got involved there. 
And uh, at one point in time, the youth pastor, somebody was asking me to get involved in like this discipleship Bible training, but it was super intense. It was called Connections, and it's basically like a residential nine-month thing where you eat, sleep, breathe Jesus, and you're constantly challenged. It's like military. I mean, like... Is that out of state somewhere? No, it was right there on campus, and uh, but you did travel as part of it. And uh, for instance, so I didn't want to do it, but God told me to do it. Like, I told him no when he brought that up, and then like I went home, and I was spending time with the Lord, and he's like, what if that's what I want you to do? And I said, well, that's what I'll do. Because I was already enrolled, like, just taking gen eds at, like, Ivy Tech, and I thought, I'm going to seminary, because I knew there's nothing else in my life that I wanted to do than, like, serve God, like, with everything. There's, yeah. I, I've, ever since coming to know him, I've had zero interest in anything else. Like, I, I barely have hobbies. I mean, and I need to branch out, but <laughs> I've, like, found deep satisfaction in just seeking his face, and... So anyways, he told me to do uh, that training, and um, as as part of it, um, they come in one day, and they bring this list of countries, and they're like, okay, so you're going to figure out how to raise money and how to get there, and just, we'll have somebody meet you when you arrive in your country, but basically this is a challenging assignment, figure out how to get there. And so they'd have a list of like 10, 15 countries or whatever on here. And before the list came to me, I already knew which one was on. Yeah. And so Africa, <laughs> Africa, exactly. <laughs> and so uh, Guatemala was number three. And I, I uh, went down there for a month and had just a time in my life. And it was powerful. And, you know, and yeah. And that was uh, pretty cool. And uh, yeah. You know, I will, I, the reason why I asked if you went back to your family is I, I have a, I've talked to this guy before, and um, not similar story, but something <clears> like <throat> that where he got wrapped up in stuff, and he said the hardest thing he's he's away from his family because the hardest thing is the life that he had to leave it. He's good, and then when he comes back, it's so easy to get caught right back up into mm-hmm. it. So I didn't know if that was maybe one of the reasons why God. Had, well, yes and no. I had to learn a different way of thinking and a different way of carrying myself than maybe what my family of origin had to offer me. And it's not that they were bad people at all, but they loved me, but their understanding of love might not have had to do with correction. Like if I wanted to do anything I wanted to do, they would not stop, stop me. I mean, they would be disappointed. I would hurt my mom by my choices, but they couldn't stop me. I was wild and I would do whatever. And so that was just our kind of understanding. So I had to go and be disciplined by God, Hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So they weren't bad people or anything. That was the best parent that you can have is God. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was a a great father. And that's what he told me early on. He's just like, you know, I discipline those that I love. It's like your dad did the best he knew how, but I'm a great father. And it's like, and he disciplined me. (laughs) God disciplined the crap out of me. I I don't know how else to say it, but you know, (laughs) you're a son. Yeah. (laughs) Hebrews 11, 12, 12, yeah. yeah. I uh, got in trouble as a kid. And my mom took away all of my video games. And she said, you can get, you can play video games once you memorize Hebrews 12 <laughs> and recite it back to me. So I had that. I can't say it word for word for now, but I remember a lot of those, you know, illegitimate yeah. sons. You know, uh-huh. he loved, yeah. So, um, yeah, that was my punishment. <laughs> That's good. I got in so much. I forget what I did. Maybe I played, 
I, I, yeah, I woke up really early because I wanted to play video games before anyone was mm-hmm. awake. And I just played for like, I knew I had to turn it off and then like pretend I was back asleep. But I didn't. And then my mom wakes up. She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, nothing. And I didn't lie. She's yeah. like, I'm like, I got up at three <laughs> to play for before you guys got up or what. So, anyways, that's it, funny. It was not good. It was something like that. Maybe it was something else. But yeah, it's, um, he does. He does discipline us. Yeah. Uh, and that's how we know we're sons. That's mm-hmm. how we know. That's how we know he cares, which is so like reverse of what you should think. You know, you're like, oh, I should just be loved because I'm a son. Yeah. He does that too. Mm-hmm. But it's like, um, that's interesting. He loves us by doing what's good for us yeah. rather than what we'd want. And so, yeah. But so holistic too. Mm-hmm. Like in the time, in the, in the middle of it, you're like, man, this sucks. And then to be like, Oh, I'm so glad I went through that suck. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. So, that, so we, how long were you in Guatemala for? Just three months, or were you in there? Um, I went one time for one month, and then I went another time. Um, I had maybe two or three years later. Fast forward, I'd gotten married. I'd met somebody. I thought that it was the person I would always be with, and we had a good thing going on. And uh, I guess that's in short version. But I was married, and we went there for three or six months, three months, I think, to test out the waters because uh, we knew we were supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. And then maybe a year after that, we went down there to live full time and we stayed there for, I think, five years. Wow. Yeah. What was that like? Oh, it was amazing. Um, I mean, challenging, but amazing. Um, yeah. When we started this whole story, you talked a little bit about how taking cleaning those good aspects mm-hmm. from being in Guatemala. What are some things that you now perceive the world differently because of that? Just like you said, I'm mm-hmm. going to ask about your family before. What were some of that stuff that like maybe God highlighted or has just added like flavored your life with mm-hmm. because of that experience? Wow. Well, um, I don't take myself so seriously anymore. <laughs> um, one thing that you have to learn how to do is if you live cross-culturally, you have to learn how to laugh at yourself because you're going to make mistakes a lot. So yeah. uh, that's one thing I've carried with me for the rest of my life, but up till now. But one thing that I think I, I could say like big picture is if you go, and maybe you don't have to move to another country, but this is the best example I could think of, is imagine that you grow up in the U.S. and you're like, we'll call U.S. culture blue. And so this is all you've ever known. And it's like a fish in water. This is your experience. This is your culture. Everybody knows, you know, how to talk to one another. You know the social cues. You know how you want to flow if things are going to work. Now all of a sudden you take this blue person and you transplant them into yellow and say Guatemala is yellow. And there's all these social norms and cues and understandings and ways of doing everything that is completely foreign to you. And and it feels foreign. When you first get there, you're telling yourself, well, this is off. This is wrong. Our way is better. Well, that's kind of cool. And you're always comparing things to like where you came from. But eventually over time, you begin to kind of look at yourself and the way that you think and the way that you look at things. And you, you're like, holy, you're like, I'm turning green. (laughs) You're like, I really don't like, I'm not Guatemalan. I don't fully belong here, but I've, I've adopted these like ways of thinking and the ways of seeing the world that, wouldn't make sense in the u.s so you never feel fully at home in guatemala and then when you come back to the u.s it's like you just yeah. you've absorbed things that make you not the same and so you never fit in back home either like reverse cu- culture shock can be worse than the original culture shock you have this thing when you 
travel overseas, it's just kind of how I was describing earlier yeah. that you're always comparing things and you're like, you know, this doesn't make sense and things will make you angry, whether it's waiting seven hours in traffic because the infrastructure doesn't work or it takes you two and a half hours to pay your internet bill and you got to go to three different desks and you're like, where's the efficiency? And then after being there for two years, you say, oh, they're just supplying jobs for people. There ain't no industry here. So they give three people a job to do one person's or, or whatever may be the reason. I, right. I can't say that that's necessarily the reason, but right. it works that way for them. Yeah. And then it's also all about relationship. Oh, one thing. Thank you, God. I feel like this is just kind of like dropped in my heart is my understanding of like um, friendship. Mm. Um, I had good friends. I still have good friends, like American good friends. Um, but the Guatemalans taught me a whole nother level to this thing. Like you might move in next to somebody and you think as an American that this person is your friend and you're hanging out with them and you're talking, you might even share some meals, but they're watching you. They're watching you for maybe nine months, maybe a year. There's no set time, but you go from being just a person to like, eventually you enter into confianza. And once you're in confianza, confidence with them, the friendship is deeper binding meaning like more like what yours is mine and mine is yours. It's like, you know how I said they're collective in their mindset rather than just so solid individualistic. And so if they call me at three in the morning and they say, hey, my kid just broke his leg and I have the means to do something and I'm in confianza, I'm expected to help with that. Mm. You know, or if somebody needs a ride to the airport and it's an inconvenience, you know, if I can't do it, then I need to find someone else to do it. And it's reciprocated, you know, it's like, so there's a deeper level of expectation in your relationships. And so that was something I feel like I can't say I always practice, but I try to, you saw I'm aware action. of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which makes you a better friend. I think so. Yeah. Especially that's that yellow coming here and you're like, yeah, man, I'll take you wherever. No big deal. Right. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. What are you doing, man? This is inconvenient. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Do you, would you say the prison was like also maybe a, a blue into yellow? Oh man, or prison was, was a whole, that was like nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, honestly, yeah. there's some elements of it that it's just like, it's like your uncle and your cousin. There's just normal people in there. Yeah. But then you also have like aggressive type group think, like depends on where you're at. And there's this game, there's this system. It's a world within a world. And if you don't know the system, you're going to get chewed up. Mm. I had cousins that went to prison before me. I'd write them letters. So I knew all about the game before I showed up. Yeah. So I, I knew what it was about, but people are always looking to prey on other people. You've got like wolves, you've got sheeps, or sheep, sheeps. (laughs) (laughs) You got like wolves, sheeps, and you know, like whatever dogs. I mean, I'm just creating this on the spot, but you just got these predatory people that's trying to get over looking for any moment of weakness. And they're going to try to get over on you, whether they're taking what's yours and, or there's people who are victims. And then there's people who just stand on their own and they don't need a pack. They don't need a racist gang. They don't need whatever, but they just mind their own business. They're like, don't cross me and I won't cross you. And as long as you'll stand up for yourself, you can be that typically. Um, but if you show fear or you're a coward, you're going to be a victim. Mm. So that's basically what it is. Smell is piranhas. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And and so it's kind of just interesting, but I think I learned a ton about like how people are and how they're all the same deep down inside. Mm. Cause after I had gotten saved and I was in prison, like I was really radical. I was like, I knew God was real. And so I got nothing to be afraid of at all. And so I'd come out of my cell. And as I said, I'd just sit there and read the Bible three hours a day. And so I would, 
teach people what God was teaching me. Hmm. You know, one day I remember I walked out of my cell and this guy had a magnetic mirror and he's kind of shaving in his doorway. And I said, oh, that's cool. You got a mirror there. I was like, can I, can I share something with you? And he's like, yeah. And I told him like about James and how the mirror was like a word and how we, we have to look intently into it and do what it says. And that's how we, it transforms us. And I just began to teach him there in the doorway. And he's like, yeah, that's, that's cool. Young buck. I like that. And then like, you know, people were reasonably respectful, yeah. most people. Yeah. And so I was like kind of trying to invest in people, but some people would just kind of look at you and like, go away with that. And I'd be like, all right. And I'd go away with that. But that same person, like on one occasion would like army crawl in the middle of the night over to the bunk. Cause I'd asked him if I could pray for him. He's like, no. And then he comes over and he like, he's like, Hey, he's like, can you pray for my mom? She's sick. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And then he like leave. He didn't want nobody to see that, but you know, wow. that showed me what people were really like that were all the same wow. deep down inside. So that's what I learned where I learned people were what they were about and things like that. And so, yeah, so I, I learned a lot from prison too. And, and I made some good friends in there. There were people that I met that were believers and I knew them out and we hung out for a few years and you know, just people. Yeah. Wow. It's a little scarier, but people. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Nightmare on Elm is what you said. That, yeah. I could see that. Well, it was just the, like the first places they send you, like there's this place called RDC, which is down by Indianapolis and you're locked down for like 22 hours a day, maximum security. And everybody's in there, the killers, the rapists, everything in between. And so that's hard time. You only do about a month there, Max. And then you get out. And when I went to Westville, they sent you to like eight center and like that's on the side called GSE general service complex. And like if Westville was hard, that's about as hard as it gets. And when I showed up, it was like I was walking up the stairs and they don't give you sharpened number two pencils and stuff in jail. But when you show up to prison, I had this sharpened number two pencil and I've got it like in my hand and I'm just like walking up these stairs about to face the pit. And I'm just like, all right, God, I was like, honestly, this is how I've prayed in several occasions in my life. I said, anything comes at me sideways, anything happens, I will come out of here a man. I will plunge this freaking pencil in somebody's eye when they're sleeping and stir their brain up. I was like, Lord, look out for me or I will look out for myself. And I was terrified as I prayed that prayer. Yeah. And he protected me and never came at me. It was like lion, you know, Daniel in the lion's den. I weighed probably 130 pounds when I went in there. Wow. I gained 50 to 55 pounds and I swelled up to what I could. Yeah. Cause it's, it's size and mentality and I don't know, man. I mean, wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely yellow compared to blue. You know yeah, no, it's a whole yeah, it's a whole different world. I don't even know how to compare that, but it taught me wonderful lessons, and I got to know God, and it was in that context that He had taught me things experientially that are some of my greatest stories and experiences that I have still to this day. Yeah, like, could I tell you real quick about yeah. how He taught me spiritual warfare? Yes. Okay. Yeah, 100%. I think people like this story. I, I've got a lot of stories, but I feel like this is one of my favorites. Yeah in one of my most terrifying. Um, <clears throat> so I, uh, I was like, I was sitting, there's these two um, metal like um, bunks that come out of the wall and then they'll give you these foam mats and then they have this like table that's about hip high, just a steel slab that comes out of the wall. Yeah. And every night they cut the big lights off above your head, but then they'd have this little soft like glow light that was kind of orange in the corner. And if you, if you sat yourself right, then you could read by that light. But 
it was difficult to do. Yeah. And I had the bottom bunk because I'd been in the cell longer and I had this celly named Robert and, uh, Robert was interesting. I mean, he didn't seem like a real bad dude, but he, you know, he's just interesting. And anyways, one night they slammed the doors. There's this electronic mechanism and it shuts. And so I'm like, okay, time to get down. I'm going to get in the word. So I start reading and, uh, I'm starting to read, I'm in John, and then all of a sudden I hear a voice from behind me, and like, I hear this voice say, what are you reading? And that's like, not how, that wasn't Robert's voice, but I thought he was playing games, so I was like, oh, I'm reading about when Jesus, you know, feeds the 5,000. He's like, oh yeah? I said, yeah. And he's like, what about when he fed the 4,000? And I was like... I thought to myself, did Jesus feed the 4,000? And I just stuck my page, and it was like turned over to one of the other Gospels. It was Luke or Mark, and the heading said, Jesus feeds the 4,000. And uh, anyways, I was like, I was like, okay, that was weird. But I just went back, and I just kept reading. And uh, about 20 minutes later, because I'd read real slow, I was just like, that's how I'd get in the Word, is you just meditate, you chew on it, and you go back, you know, whatever. Yeah. That's another conversation. But, yeah. That's how I'll read it and then uh-huh. think about it, then go back and yep. read it again. Yep. And then, let it simmer and get like, mm-hmm. like slow drip coffee. And yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, anyway, so about 20 minutes later, he's like, what are you reading? And I'm like, uh, I'm reading about when Jesus walked on the water. And about this time I'm getting irritated. I think he's playing games, but I'm just trying to read, you know? And so he's like, oh yeah. And I said, yeah. And I look back down and it says, when the disciples saw him, they were afraid. And like, he says, hey. And I said, yeah. And he's like, you know why the disciples were afraid? And I knew that he could not read the page. And I said, uh, no. Why? And like every hair on my neck, yeah, and my body yeah. was standing on end. And he says, because I was in the boat. Oh, wow. And uh, it was at that moment that <laughs> I realized this isn't a person I'm talking to. This is like the spirit of fear or something. And so I turned around and I stood up and he's on the top bunk and I'm just looking at him. Was it, is is it a thing you saw? It's a person. It's a person. Okay. Yeah. Not Robert though. Uh, well the thing was in Robert or on him or whatever (laughs) you're, it seemed like he was in him. But anyways, and he says, uh, he looks at me and he's just flicking his like tongue back and forth. His eyes are rolling and he says, I'm going to effing kill you time to die or something like that and then like i'm like holy crap in my head i'm like pissing my pants in yeah. fear so i like i look up because i don't know where god's at i'm just looking up and then all of a sudden like i look up to the lord and then like i just feel like this presence i feel his presence go boom and pulsate through me and the fear just leaves my body and out my feet and then i look at him and there was only one verse i'd committed to memory at that time it was First John 4, 4. I said, greater is he that's in me than he who's in the world. And he began to convulse. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then, like, and like he flops, and he turns over, and he looks at me, and he says, he says, leave me alone. I'm trying to sleep, in his regular voice. And I was like, the crap you're trying to sleep. Yeah, I was like, and he denied it. Like, the whole time he was my bunk, he said he had no recollection. Yeah, recollection. Uh, yeah. Of that experience. Oh. And then sometimes, like, when the Lord wanted to get my attention or he wanted to teach me something, and I forgot about the context of all this, I was reading in Mark the day before, 
and it was probably Mark five or somewhere. And like Jesus was coming up in a boat and there was this like demoniac guy and he's coming out and everybody's afraid of him. And I'm reading it and I got my doubts. I'm just like, okay, God, I was like, what's all this about? And that's how most of my questions would be directed is I'm like, okay, Lord, I, I want to believe, you know, but what is all this? And I said, show me spiritual warfare. And oh. it was either the next day or that night that this thing had happened. Oh, wow. And then as a follow-up, because I felt like in the early days, I don't know if I'm just numbskull or what, but the Lord would teach me two times. He'd be like, okay, like, get this. And yeah. so in the morning, they popped the cell, and there's this dude named Terrence, and he was like this MMA fighter guy all tatted up. And he, like, they popped the cell, and then he, like, runs towards my room and slides into the cell like, you know, he's trying to steal home base or something, <laughs> you know. And he's, like, shaking. He's like, what is this? And I was like, I don't know. What is it? And he's got this journal in his hand, and he's like, just read it. He's like, I'm, I'm going crazy. I don't know what's going on. And he hands me this journal. And then, like, it's a story. And anyways, it says, now that we have little Terrence in our possession, we'll proceed to tell you what we've been doing with him over the last. And anyways, like, the story it was like three or four pages, and it changed handwriting four or five times, and it got towards the bottom. And it says, well, we have to stop now. He's waking up. And then at the P, it was like drug off the page. And I was like, I was trying to tell him, I was like, bro, I don't know what kind of stuff you were into, but you got to give your life to the Lord. And he's like, no, that's bull crap. I'm, I'm going to go see a therapist, is it blah, blah, blah. And he wouldn't hear it, but it was more like God showing me again. He's just like, this Spiritual is warfare. the reality. Wow. And, and I'll tell you, when I lived in Guatemala or other places, I've never been afraid of like demonic stuff or witch doctors coming out and trying to curse us at the base of a village. I've been in some heavy deliverance things, did deliverance ministry later in life. And no reason to fear because greater is he that's in me than he who's in the world and that is the truth if he is in you you have nothing to be afraid of yeah at all because it's his power it's his authority yeah that's so. such a uh man that's the cool thing about god is like i just see him as just this this hope this beacon of hope all the time and it's like you don't have to worry about it. it's tough life's really rough mm -hmm. like, things are not fun and the story you just told Scares me a lot, right? I'm like, man, that does not sound like a situation I'd ever want to be yeah. in. But with God, like, you know, every time that the friggin' forces encircle you, you know, I think about um, Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. two towers, right? Yeah. They're just all these orcs around it, and there's nothing. And then God comes over that hill, and he's mm -hmm. just the beacon of light. Yeah. I see that in a lot of different scenarios throughout my life all the time, like politics and, mm -hmm. and you know, money situations, all these just like and life situations and friends and stuff. I just like, I see the darkness and I see God is the hope, Amen. you know? And I love that. I love that. It's like, <clears throat> he's got you in like literal demon possession happening in your, yeah. in your cell. That's wild. That is a, and, and I can totally relate. I mean, I even feel like what he's teaching me now is kind of like, at least from the last few weeks, it's kind of like when he says, fret not or do not worry. He's actually teaching me how to like live that out and just know that even if I don't see the evidence of how this is going to play out, I can, I can really trust him. And that sounds like some elementary stuff. Sometimes I feel like we got to loop around and learn the same stuff over and over again, but sometimes the lesson will be a little deeper when he teaches it. Yeah. And like, I think I'm starting to get it. You know, I, I can't say I 100% got it, but I'm, I'm starting to really fret not and say, okay, well, God's got this. Either way, it's going to be okay. Yeah. You know, yeah, he continues. Yeah, no, it is elementary, but then you got to, and it's like, yeah, God loves you. That's such an elementary thing that we all learn, but it's so hard to remember that at times. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, yeah, he does. Like, that's such a wild thing. Yeah, man, that's crazy. I, I, you went through like 
<laughs> the boot camp of yeah, like God wants to. Yeah, that's such a crazy way to learn spiritual warfare. Yeah, yeah it was, and it was, it was good. I mean, he he has many different kids, and he knows the best way that we learn, and yeah. so that's how he wanted to teach me. And yeah, that's what. So after Guatemala, I and I know <clears throat> this kind of because we you talked about at church sometimes. Mm-hmm. You kind of went away from the Lord for a little bit. Is that correct, or am uh, I? It's what was that journey like after? Because you know you're no coming to mission seventy two. You're like I'm not been at the church for a little bit. Mm-hmm. You're just going through, and that's what life is. These cyclical yeah. seasons of. Well, it was really honestly. It was. It's kind of hard to explain, and I'm just coming out of this season and trying to. I wouldn't say try to make sense of it because I've just accepted it for what it was. But um, I was um living in Guatemala, like as a missionary, I'd been involved in a few different projects. I was finally kind of completing or fulfilling some of the personal desires I had. I had started an English school there. One of my goals was I felt like, you know, even though I was called to Guatemala, it was kind of overly evangelized. And so I wanted to encourage my supporters to pour that money into fast church growth areas. So I was trying to figure out how to establish us there you know, financially and both through a ministry through that. So I started an English school and Everything was starting to look like if it was going to be successful, it was about to really be successful. I mean, in my eyes, very small, nothing. But I was starting an English school in a slum community. I came up with, I think there's nothing new under the sun, but I felt like I came up with this like justice sliding scale, like where the wealthy were paying, you know, based on their family and then middle class and most of them were poor. And but they had to pay something because they wouldn't have buy in. And so it it was pretty cool. And uh, so I was doing all that, and then I didn't realize that there was elements of my heart and my life that were not where God wanted them to be. And so God did not cause things to happen, but he uses all things that happen. And so when I felt like I was at the height of everything, I felt like I was good at what I did. And I wasn't so dependent on the Lord. I wasn't Mm. expecting him to lead, but yet I would tell, you know, I'd be like, okay, this is what we do next. It's kind of common sense. And so Lord bless this, you know, type of thing. And I didn't realize how bad that was until he took it away. And I was asking him to make sense of things later. But what had happened was I, one of my best friends from like growing up, um, he got off of drugs and then he relapsed and then he died. But before that happened, I talked to him over Skype or video call or whatever. And we talked about the Lord and we never told each other that we loved each other, but we told each other we loved each other. We were super close. I mean, he was like a brother to me. I mean, we grew up together. It's hard to just say in words how much this guy meant to me. And anyways, so he made a mistake. He OD'd, he died. And so I was trying to like recover from that but it hurt me so bad. I was like in my room for like two days. I wouldn't even come out. I was just broken. It just hurt me. And, uh, and, uh, a couple weeks later I had to take a trip up to the North and, uh, and, uh, work with some church planting stuff. And, um, whenever I'd come back, there was, uh, just a bombshell kind of dropped on me. The worst possible thing that, um, anyone could imagine and uh, just deep, deep betrayal. It was like, you know, somebody really close just betrayed me, and they did it with somebody I led to the Lord that was a kid, you know, and uh, it shattered 
my identity completely. And I had like nine or 10 young people. I call them young people, but probably like 18 to 27 living with me. I was discipling them. I was doing this connection school thing that I had been taught in that I led in the U S and that I had also been through. And it was that military thing that was super intense. And anyways, uh, they had never like even seen me like angry. Like whenever I was like walking with the Lord, I really, really tried to walk it out. When the scripture talks about being blameless, I tried, you know, you couldn't pin something externally on me. I mean, I even had freaking clear play DVD players when I was super Christian. One time I tried watching Borat on it and I got like 10 <laughs> minutes. Like there was only 10 minutes of that movie, but I just wanted to test the power of the clear play. Yeah. And so I was like really trying to press in the Lord. I, I, I always had this belief that like if you were consecrated and you were clean, it was like you were this vessel that the anointed oil could flow through yeah. like with less resistance. And so I wanted to keep myself pure for him. And I did that with my marriage. I did that with my courting. I did, you know, so, um, yeah. So anyways, I, I got some news and I, uh, didn't know how to take it. And so I, uh, pretty much flipped out and I did flip out. Um, I, uh, the one dude's brother that I guess like it, you know, it was, I went downstairs and he's standing there and I just saw red. Mm. I like grabbed him by the throat, slammed him on the table, told him that if his brother ever comes to my house again, I'll kill you both. Um, yeah, I flipped real quick and uh, went outside. I went to a corner store. I got some tall boys and a pack of cigarettes. Hadn't had a drink in 12 years, you know, no cigarettes, no nothing. And and, uh, and I just looked at God and I said, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. And, and I struggled for a year and a half with uh, every day with my mouth. I'd say, I forgive, but my heart wouldn't let it go. And it destroyed me. And uh, so eventually it ended in divorce. I made a lot of poor decisions. I'm not a victim in this um, at all. If I could do things differently, I would have. I should not have put, you know, my ministry or my identity or anything else apart from my, you know, first. But I didn't have my priorities because I had a broken identity and I found my identity in what I did for God rather than who I was in God. And so that's something that the Lord had to, he had to take everything away. And he even warned me, he said, if you don't quit, because I was closet drinking. I'd be preaching during the day and closet drinking, you know, at night. And then eventually I just said, I can't do this anymore. And I, I walked away and I ended in a divorce and I went back up to Michigan and I lived for a while. And, and I noticed that like nobody from the church that had sent me out, it was kind of like, you know, you're leaving and everybody's like, Oh, go missionary, you know, go do this. And, you know, and I, we had a strong support base, like record time. I mean, when, God called us. It was like, we didn't have to try to raise money. It came fast. It came miraculous. We had a support base. And that was one thing is I was like, God, as long as you want me here, I won't ask for money. I won't think about money. It's like, I'll just go do what you want me to do. And sure enough, didn't have to wrestle with that. Always had more than enough. It wasn't a struggle. And so I'm just saying that to think I, I had this super tight knit community and these were my fathers, my mothers and people I dearly loved and I still love. And God's restoring a lot of those relationships even now in this season and a, a dozen or so never left. But I felt so alone during that time. And I went up there and I was 
staying with my family and the darkest moment of my life probably when I realized that there was no reconciliation and this just that you know I'd failed as a missionary I'd failed as everything God's abandoned me and I'm alone and uh, so I'm I'm at my sister's house and uh, I I thought about probably many times in my life taking my life but never since being like serving God going gung-ho yeah and so I'm just getting ready to like I'm pissed I mean like there's a mirror in the room and I'm just like f you God I'm just like having it out and I was like you know the health thing I'm cool with that I was like you know you knew this you know and I was just broken and in pain and in rage and I didn't give you know I didn't give a shit about hell I didn't give a care about any of that and it was like and God didn't tell me anything. He didn't tell me like, oh yeah, you know, you're gonna go to hell or no religious stuff. He said, what I felt was a thought from me. Said, your mother's gonna find the body of her oldest child up here. This is the most selfish thing you've ever thought. And then I said, okay. And I thought about her and I didn't do it. And so I called the hospital the next day and I said that I, I, uh, I'm thinking about killing myself. And I said, now? And I said, and I thought about like straight jackets and Thorazine. And I was like, no, no, not now. I'm good. And uh, so anyways, they arranged a time for me to go and get this like group therapy at the local hospital. I was going to go in there for like six or eight hours a day for three weeks and talk to, you know, that. And I, I felt like the church had abandoned me, whether that was a reality or whether that was my perception. I don't know. But that was what my reality was in that moment. And I said, well, maybe medicine can help me. Maybe doctors can help me. I mean, I'm here and so a couple weeks later I get to go to the hospital and I go upstairs on the third floor and uh, there's this nice room comfy furniture and six to eight um, patients and three therapists sitting in there and I sit in this nice seat and I'm like oh man this feels good I was like maybe this is gonna help and then uh, they said we have a new patient here Brian Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and I said well, God forbid anything else happen at this point in time. I was like, I have no bandwidth. I said, like, you know, God forbid one of my parents died right now or something. I said, I would go down there to the, you know, that CVS, and i point out the window. I'd get a half gallon of vodka, and I would just pound it. I was like, I, I can't handle life anymore. I'm done. I'm, like, literally done. I'm at my wit's end. And uh, they said, thanks for sharing. And I was like, oh, wow, you can kind of say anything here, you know. And uh, anyways, uh probably about 10 minutes later there was a knock on the door and um and they said uh is Mr. Fry in here and they said yeah and there's like his mother's downstairs there's some family emergency and uh and so I go downstairs and I see my mom in the in the lobby of the hospital and she looks at me and she said your father just dropped dead like uh, he got airlifted to Kalamazoo because he lived in three rivers and so anyways so we drove down there, and he was kind of in a coma thing. He had died, but they brought him back for a second, but then he was in a coma. And so we got down there, and he was breathing, but not really with it. And uh, so I had the opportunity to kind of hold his hand, and I could just tell that he was fighting to stay there. And I just told him, I said, if you need to go, if this hurts, and you don't know if you can hold on, you can let go. And I said, uh, I said I'll, I'll tell your other kids about Jesus I'll make sure you know I'll do my best and uh and then it was like he heard me he died 
And uh, wow. I just felt like every time I was trying to get up, it was like there was this big, muddy, demonic marine boot kicking me in the face. So finally I just said, when my, when my dad passed at his funeral, I was just pissed drunk. And I was pissed drunk for a long time. I mean, I would hold down jobs and handle what I needed to handle to have an apartment and to live my life and stuff. But I was extremely broken. And, you know, and it wasn't that I ever gave up on God, quote unquote, or anything. It was just I didn't understand. And so he never gave up on me was the point. And all through that time, there was glimmer of hopes between that in that five to seven years, you know. Um, And he's not done with me yet, like at all and he showed it time and time again he pursued me throughout that time but i couldn't see it because i was just blinded by my anger and my unforgiveness but over over a time period he removed all that from me my anger and my unforgiveness and i hold nothing against anybody and and actually i think it was one of the most powerful moments was a few months ago when or however long ago it was when john thomas came to the church and um, when I was in this thing, the dark night of the soul, where I felt really, really lost and like had God had turned his face away from me, like some people believe like happened to Jesus on the cross. I mean, not so much me, but I have other reasons for believing that the Father never turned away. But anyways, that you feel abandoned. And I believe Jesus may have felt, <laughs> you know, like, okay. But anyways, I'm not comparing myself to Jesus at all. I'm saying this is actually probably a very normal thing for people who like follow the Lord, that there's a stripping Many of us get a dark night of the soul. Many of us get a dark night of the spirit. And I can't go into it too much because I don't fully understand it all, but I've lived through some of it. Yeah. And um, and it almost killed me. But what it did was it destroyed my ego. It destroyed my anger. It destroyed my pride. And when those things start to get removed, then the Lord, I'm believing there's a greater seabed for usefulness for him. And uh, But anyways, I want to... I hope I'm not taking too long. Oh, dude, this is taking um, all the time you want, man. <laughs> okay, as I say, I got like one more story, I think. Uh, yeah. But um, I got questions too. So that's <laughs> the other thing. But yeah, no, go tell your story. Man. <laughs> There's a so there was a a young lady who came and stayed with us. Um, I don't know, maybe three years into our ministry, and her name was Shannon. And uh, anyway, she was from Wisconsin, and she was just hardcore Catholic, but she loved Jesus love Jesus as much as anybody I've ever known. But I had my certain ideas about Catholicism. I had my certain ideas about anything that's not, that's outside of my branch of Christianity and, and whatever. And for some reason, some rightfully so in some ways, but in other ways, I've just learned it's all about Jesus. Yeah. And so anyways, um, so Shannon came and stayed with us for maybe nine months or so, and we really took care of her. We really loved her. She was like a younger sister, and I remember a turning point in my friendship with her because she was much younger. Um, she was probably just like either before college or after college. She was coming to work at an English school and this and that, and I remember one time like just deconstructing her whole belief system and just like... <laughs> this is where you're wrong. This is where you're wrong. Yes, this is where you're and then all of a sudden like in the middle of it, like I can just see that I'm just like, it's not, this isn't the way. And the Holy Spirit's just like, he's like, you know, this is how she's going to remember you. And then I was like, I apologized to her right there. And I said, you know what? I'm sorry. 
And then I would walk her to mass because it's a dangerous co- country and a couple of blocks. And I'd go, I'd walk her to mass every day and I respected her faith. And, and anyway, she ended up being a really good friend of mine. And through my darkest hour, she just hits me up out of the blue. She would write me like these handwritten letters a few times and just try to encourage me. And she's just a classy person, just a really cool individual. And she said, uh, she said, me and my parents think you need a retreat. And I was like, okay. And she's like, would you be open to doing that? And I said, yeah, sure. And so uh, her parents, which I never knew were super rich, but they're super rich, um, they paid for me to go to this place that was like only like the high ups of like Opus Dei go to. And so um, it was like a monastery and I show up there and like um, she's there and some of her friends and they're kind of working in the kitchen, but it's just this intense environment. You're not just supposed to be mingling with it's. Lexio Divina and, and all of whatever the, you know, liturgical practices and I call it Christian calisthenics and, you know, so <laughs> yeah. all that's going up, on. Down, and, up, down, up, yeah. Up. And I was kind of familiar with it. So I tried playing the game for a few minutes, but I was like, yeah, you know. And so like on the second day I told like the director of the place, I said, uh, I said, I'm not from a liturgical tradition. I don't really know what's going on. And then he looked shocked like I was like infiltrating the ranks or something because these are like the high up people in this thing. And then I just started sharing more and he could hear my brokenness. And he said, he said, yeah, son. He's like, the last thing you need is Catholicism or any other religion. He's like, but I think there might be something that we have for you. And he took me into this library and there were all these like dusty books and stuff. And we were walking through the library and he says, this is a little too radical for the Catholics. They wouldn't usually read it, but I think it'll be something that you could find enjoyment in. And he pulled off this book, um, like Return of the Prodigal might have been the title. It was by Henry Nouwen, and he pulled it off the shelf. And I'd never been exposed to any of Nouwen's writings or nor knew who he was. But he said, you can read this book. You can go and do their stuff. You can walk around the campus. You can sit in your room. You can eat the food. Just enjoy yourself. Stay, you know, do do whatever ministers to you in this time. And so I took the book. I went back to my room. I opened it. And uh, anyways, well, the cover is like Rembrandt's uh, painting of the prodigal son. And that's kind of what the book's about. But it goes deeper. And there's a whole message in it that, like, I began reading it. And it's just pure illumination. It's like God's speaking to my heart. He's de- ministering to the deepest places of my identity, where it's been broken, and what it should be and how it could be and how I'm not the only one. But we always swing between like these two equally broken identities of like the self-righteous religious one and and then like the broken son who knows that he needs God. But sometimes we begin at that place of brokenness and we come home and then we take things for granted and we begin to become something else which is equally prodigal. And it's just that self-righteous thing. And then like, but ultimately the goal is to become like the father you break the cycle and you become like the father and you love the broken and you love the self-righteous equally and it's yeah but anyway so um that's the context for john thomas comes to speak um maybe six or nine months two ten years ago ten years ago yeah and uh and anyway so i come into the back and i wasn't sure i just knew tom uh, john thomas was related to kyle some somehow and i met some of kyle's crew and you know they're just cool people so i was like you know i was like okay and um um anyways so i'm i'm getting ready to take a seat in the back and then as i'm sitting down like i hear the lord say i've got something for you 
And I was like, cool, you know? And, uh, and as I'm, as I'm sitting back there, um, I'm looking at John Thomas and he's up front and he kind of looks like he doesn't know what way to go. He's like, he even says, I, I have two different messages and I'm not sure which one is for today. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to share. And then he pauses and he goes, oh yeah, that's it. And then he kind of like just goes and he preaches the message like in a nutshell of what I had read in that book, like dang near like verbatim, the same types of ideas. And it's not a fully new idea. There's, you know, uh, Timothy Keller wrote a book on the prodigal and it's very similar to Henry Nouwen's work. And then that message from John Thomas, which was beautiful, but it's that message. And that wasn't what kicked me in the face. I guess that's a way I could say it, but it was, uh, when he got towards the end of the message, like I couldn't really hear or pay attention because I was so overwhelmed by the fact that God saw me. He saw me when I was in that place and he saw me where I was at now. And there was just so much brokenness still in me, but he still loved me somehow in ways that I can't wrap my mind around. And John Thomas said something like, if anybody wants I heard that in English, and then I heard, wah, 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 wah. I heard Charlie Brown's teacher. I don't know what he even said at that point, but all I know is I was just feeling something that I had never felt washing over me. And then so I, like, stood up, and when I stood up, it was just, like, everything else just, like, dissolved. And I don't know if it was a vision or a trance or what it was, but there was the Lord, like, in front of me. And then it was like nobody else was there but him and me. And there was these warm, like, waves of just liquid love that began to come from him. And the first one crashed, and it hit me, and it jolted out. And there was these, sorry, moon away from Mike. There was these, <laughs> I'm getting a little animated. Yeah, you get <laughs> There was these uh, two, two things, and they separated from me. And then the other, like, wave hit me, and boom, and they moved further away. And I could see in my peripheral, and it was just the Lord before me. And I had never felt love like that I never like, and I can even feel it like whenever I think about her, when I look at him and it's like, the thing is like, I've read the Bible. I know that he loves us and I believe that he loves us and I could tell somebody God loved him, but I never felt it like that. I had never felt his love and I don't know how. I mean, I don't doubt it. I never doubt it. I'm I'm so deeply secure, even though I'm completely broken. Like, I don't know if any of this makes sense, but it was just like one of the most life-changing moments that I've ever had with him that... Yeah. Are you familiar with Kairos and Kronos moments? Mm-mm. So Kronos is like chronological. So you look at time as like chronological. And then Kairos are these like spikes of like, I remember this moment. I remember this moment. I feel like that was a, a very peak. Like you'll never forget it. Mm-hmm. it's not chronological it's not in this year at that time it's like when I felt that yeah and it's like and then I'll see this in the future here and I've had it in the past there's another point of I remember when that you know you talk about your dad mm-hmm. having his you know multi-million or the millionaire huge Hoosier money you're mm-hmm. like that was a point where I first saw it. you're seeing those Kairos moments mm-hmm. boom boom I feel like that's kind of what was oh, I've never heard of that yeah. that's cool yeah that's a we would we do a. We used to do a life group. Uh, this maybe prior to your time when we may come back to a life group at Mission Seventy Two. I hope so. Mm-hmm. But one of the things we would do is we would talk about what happened in our week, but then that moment where you had that experience. What it, you know? What's that one thing that you think about that happened last week? Yeah. Like yeah, that's where something happened. Maybe it wasn't 
you can't connect it to God, but you're like, man, that really sticks out. Mm-hmm. It's not Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. that happened when that person said that thing. I don't remember what day it was, but that's something that peaked. And then we talked about Kronos and Kairos. So we talked about that, but that's and that and that's powerful. And that's like yeah. those things that like when I was reading through the Bible with zero understanding of anything, like when I was reading it, and I would see like the patriarchs and others would build like these altars, mm-hmm. like where they'd have this experience with God, whether it be Bethel or another one. And I was like, oh yeah, they're piling up these rocks, these living stones, these moments that. To signify this is where we met God. It's kind of like the same That's thing that you guys were yeah. talking about doing in the, in the life group. You're building your altars in your... Wow. Yeah. That's cool. That's awesome. Wow. I, I, my questions are now gone. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, I think that's a really good... Unless you have anything else to say. I think no. that's a great way to, yeah. to end this. Yeah. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming on and talking and just telling your story. And it's cool to hear just like what God's doing. He's not done. Yeah. That's the awesome thing. I, I, I know. I believe that there's, we're in a, I'm in a seed bed season and I feel like we're all like estuaries prepared us for such a time as this. We don't know what's about to pop off, but man, it's going to pop off Yeah, and it's going to look <laughs> different. The, the church and walking with the Lord is, is going to look different than it's ever looked before, but it's not going to be a bad thing. Yeah. We're, we're going to have a real, it's going to be a real thing, real thing. Yeah. I love that. Yep. Dude, Brian, thank you so much. Again, really, I really appreciate you just, you didn't have to go anywhere. I was gonna ask you about your crazy facebook stuff but this is so much better like i really appreciate you just talking about the things that god's doing in your life and has done in your life and is doing like i really appreciate that um you know i won't end it yet because i do want to say i have friends who are dealing with things on like deep levels and so your story i just think is going to really touch a lot of people like your story is touching a lot of people um i have friends who are dealing with depression on like a really hard level i have friends who died who've had um, loved ones die from uh, just a mistake and an overdose and mm-hmm. things like that. I, there's lots of that darkness that's just like your, the things you keep on talking, we're talking about. Like I am seeing that in my world around me, the hurts yeah. that's hitting everyone. And um, it's hard to see the hope when you're living in that. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm thankful that your t- testimony to show that God's just like, yeah. a redeemer and he's like i'm there and i'm the hope yeah so, thank he, you. he sees us through i mean you're you're right we don't necessarily feel it going through it but if we continue and if we press in and we uh you know and even if we fail you know he just he loves us and when he sees us through when you get on the other side of that you're like okay and many times there's fruit that would have never been born or there's things in us that needed to die for us to be what he really wanted us to be and sometimes things will just never make sense this side of eternity, but it will. Yeah. I believe it will. Yeah. Yeah. Our vision's weird. God's vision's cool. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, Brian. Um, if anyone wants to connect with you or get a hold of you or anything, do you want do you have any place you want to point them towards? Uh, most, most of the time people are socials, but you can mm-hmm. do whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, you can find me on Facebook, um, Brian Fry. Yeah. Uh, I'll link it. I'll come up, yeah, and uh, or also my email, brianfry777 at gmail.com. Nice. I don't know if people do e- email or what they do, but do it. one of these days I'm going to poke up and be professional again, so <laughs> I used to have an email. I need one. <laughs> yeah, brianfry777. I love that, though. That's so good. Yep. Yeah, better than 666. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love that. All right, Brian, thank you so much. Uh, we'll catch you guys next on the next episode, so peace. <laughs>